Uh, thanks to CSIS and the partnership for uh, hosting this event. Uh, this panel is the second one that TechnoServe has organized on the topic of private sector solutions to nutrition. Uh, last spring, after Feed the Future was launched, uh, we in the partnership co-hosted an event that was aimed at uh, deepening the conversation between the private sector and the USG on opportunities within Feed the Future to accelerate implementation of nutrition outcomes. Uh, Mars, Cargill, uh, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, DSM, TechnoServe, and USDA shared some of our best examples of PPPs to improve nutrition, as well as specific learnings on challenges of expanding the number of such alliances. We made recommendations to the USG on actions that it could take to spur more and scalable market-based alliances and what would best move the needle from talk to action. So almost a year later, while some progress has been made, um, some significant challenges remain in identifying what's really required to mobilize the type of public-private partnerships that will effectively address the challenge that we face. So this panel aims to take stock of what's happened since the launch of Feed the Future with regard to nutrition and PPPs and to hear from leading private sector and USAID uh, speakers in this space regarding what is needed to move beyond individual efforts to scale, uh, scaled market-led initiatives. So we see this as a real conversation versus a presentation and we look forward to a rich exchange after some initial remarks from the panel. So we have an excellent group to address this topic. Um, kicking us off first will be Simon Winter, um, TechnoServe Senior Vice President for Development. Uh, previously, Simon was the Regional Director for Africa and also worked as a management consultant for McKinsey, and so he has a long history of working to support private sector development in Africa. And he will share some insights on emerging opportunities in market-led approaches to nutrition in a TechnoServe strategy being developed, as well as briefly mention some specific partnerships that are already in action. Um, then we will move on to our private sector panelists. Um, Jorge Casimiro is the International Public Affairs Director at the Coca-Cola Company, and he leads their public affairs um, and stakeholder engagement strategies. And so uh, we're going to hear from Jorge on some interesting stuff that um, they're doing. And then Matt Freeman uh, recently joined the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition as a senior associate for business development and leverage. And prior to GAIN, he worked for USAID and did a lot of work in alliance building. So we've asked Jorge and Matt to address um, three points. One, uh, in the last year since uh, Feed the Future was announced, what's the most interesting effort their organizations have been engaged in in support of the Feed the Future agenda? Uh, two, what new initiatives are coming out soon in their respective organizations that contribute to achieving Feed the Future objectives around market-led solutions to nutrition in particular? And then very tactically, what else specifically should the USG do to deepen engagement by or with the private sector in support of Feed the Future food security objectives, particularly around uh, nutrition. Um, Bruno Kistner, who's the Director of Nutrition for DSM, um, was to join this panel but had to leave at 4 p.m. for the airport. So um, DSM is a member of the Global Alliance and Improved Nutrition, and Matt will be channeling Bruno and sharing a few thoughts from DSM on uh, their perspectives on these points. Um, then we're lucky enough to have Bruce Cogill with us. And Bruce is the director of, um, chief of the nutrition division at USAID. And he will address the first two questions, as well as then talk about what he thinks the private sector should do, um, be doing, and what USAID experience has been in working with the private sector on these nutrition issues. And then we will have a Q&A and look forward to a great discussion with you. So Simon, uh, thank you. Uh, kick us off. Thanks for coming again.
Um, I'm, I'm going to do exactly what Jason admonished uh, that we should not do in the previous panel, which is uh, be sitting here in Washington, D.C. and developing strategies uh, to be executed in uh, countries where there are uh, major challenges around um, nutrition and access to nutritional products and so on. But the question is, why am I doing that? Well, um, those of you who have read the, F the Future Guide will have noticed that there was uh, a very nice framing of the nutrition challenges, but when you looked at the practical aspects of the solutions, uh, they were uh, somewhat high level and thin on the ground. And even over the last year, although there's been some very interesting uh, pilot initiatives and a lot of discussion uh, by uh, private sector companies um, and uh, multilateral agencies as well as bilateral agencies about things the private sector should be doing. The practical reality is there's still very little going on on the ground um, that's really bringing the private sector in and creating a sustainable private sector around um, the supply of more nutritious products uh, and things that are going to solve nutrition challenges. Um, so we're still, you know, very much at the sort of level of anecdote and, um, you know, people are very happy with the orange uh, flesh sweet potato story, but that's about the only one at the moment, um, and uh, the challenges remain. So as an implementing agency, we've been thinking over the last few months that um, maybe we can help to offer some advice and counsel uh, into this space, both to private sector partners as well as to uh, the donors about some uh, rather practical things that could be done, um, and obviously we'd very happily help to execute them. Um, but uh, so that's really what this is about. It's a bit of a sort of shaping story and we're evolving our strategy as Susan mentioned. It's sort of work in progress. So uh, I think unusually for perhaps for an NGO, we're um, sort of showing our underwear here. Um, so our philosophy is uh, one that um, on the top part of the uh, left-hand side of this slide uh, is really what TechnoServe is about, which is that uh, we believe that the best solutions to poverty and its challenges, um, and nutrition is included there, uh, are through uh, improving incomes and stimulating economic growth. Um, and we believe that uh, stimulating businesses, sustainable and competitive businesses, as a way of achieving that is, is the right way to go. But we also recognize, and in particular from evidence from South Asia, uh, that nutrition doesn't get solved just by uh, improving incomes. There are, is a need for complementary interventions. Um, and uh, so what we want to look at in our strategy is what are some of those adjacent things uh, to things that we're already doing that can help to tackle uh, the nutrition challenges a lot more uh, productively, uh, we hope. Um, so there are two thrusts, really, of our strategy. One is um, trying to explore opportunities to maximize nutritional impact of uh, market-oriented agricultural activities. Um, and so, you know, for us, the priority effort is uh, to help to build businesses in markets that uh, are providing um, more nutritious products for the poor. Um, and to the extent that we can, let's, as I just mentioned, make that adjacent to things we're already doing rather than trying to invent new things. We're already very busy, we and many other agencies, not just TechnoServe by any means, very busy working with value chains. We're very busy working to organize farmers into farmer groups. We're very busy uh, working on women-oriented interventions and so on. You can just do a little tweaking of many of these things and achieve much more uh, in, in impactful programs around uh, these nutritional challenges. Uh, and then you can build around them complementary activities like educational uh, activities, messaging, uh, mother to maternal child health initiatives, and so on, uh, that will accelerate the nutritional impact. Um, the second thrust is improving the business environment. Um, and here, uh, it's a lot of what we heard on the previous panel uh, about bringing partners together under PPP-type structures uh, to uh, align those interests around things that are going to uh, improve nutritional outcomes. Um, 
and making sure that, that we do no harm in that process. I think this is a very important principle uh, that we uh, are cognizant of. Um, so, for example, uh, with no disrespect to uh, you know large multinationals trying to play in this space, um, they have to be very careful what they're doing. If they're uh, delivering free uh, products, uh, which could actually be made locally uh, and could create sustainable local businesses uh, into base of the pyramid type markets, uh, they're actually undermining uh, economic development opportunities. So we have to be very careful to uh, look at these potential conflicts of interest uh, that could be created through corporate social responsibility programs and so on, even done with the best of intentions. Um, and then obviously the governments are very, very important here. The, the regulation around food processing, food safety and standards and things like that, that are very important uh, to level the playing field are, are also often missing at the moment and need to be part of these, uh, this sort of improving business environment. Um, so what is our evolving strategy? Uh, well, very briefly, it's, uh, there's sort of five points to it at the moment. So one of the things the Technosub does uh, as part of our due diligence is we do a lot of homework uh, on trying to understand what are the, the value chains, what are the market opportunities, and how do you address the challenges and constraints to them and that's true whether you're looking at nutritional products as much as whether you're looking at uh, cash crops or, or, or other more traditional things that we've done. So uh, making sure the homework is done is really important. And then the, on the intervention side, there are really four things. So one is fortification. There's been a lot of work done already by GAIN and others, uh, GAIN's partners and others on large-scale fortification uh, initiatives um, linked to uh, World Food Program and other um, sources of de structured demand, um, institutional demand. But there's a lot of room and scope for community based uh, fortification and I'll give you one brief example of something we're working on in a moment uh, secondly it's commercializing nutritious uh, uh, produce or processed products for base of the pyramid markets there's been a lot of attention as I just mentioned on the structured demand uh, whether it's school feeding programs or other large scale sources of demand but relatively little attention on what do poor consumers actually consume uh, what food do they consume where does that food come from? And how do we get into those markets and, and, and improve the quality and nutritional uh, ingredients of those markets? Um, thirdly, uh, it's on the production side, so crop diversification. There's uh, a lot of uh, concern we have at the moment about some of the direction that Feed the Future has gone in and, and Gates Foundation as well around uh, an excessive focus, we think, on staple crops, um, which on the one hand can be uh, fortified, but... Um, what people are actually producing and consuming is often vegetables and um, uh, beans and things like that that are highly nutritious. And if we have too much focus on staples at the expense of those things and shift relative prices, we could actually end up with worse uh, micronutrient outcomes, even though calorific intake might increase. Um, and then finally, um, there's an opportunity as you're building businesses, and again, I'll give you a brief example of one of these, uh, where uh, you can, around the business hubs that you're creating, actually overlay uh, a lot of other provision of services that uh, will support maternal child health uh, initiatives, for example. Um, so the first example is the uh, African Alliance for Improved Food Processing and a, a partnership that we have with uh, General Mills and uh, USAID. Uh, at the moment, and um, this is all about stimulating uh, small and medium scale food processing companies to uh, increase their uh, 
processing and production of nutritious foods um, aimed at the most vulnerable. Um, and I'm just going to skip through this fairly quickly. Um, so currently we're working with six uh, processes in Tanzania. We're aiming over the next couple of years to work with about 15. These are locally owned uh, entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and we're doing scoping uh, in a number of neighboring countries uh, and hoping to start, uh, intending to start in Kenya, Zambia, and Malawi uh, this year as well. The partners here uh, are the ones in the title, but also uh, there's uh, General Mills is part of Partners in Food Solutions, uh, which is a platform uh, to scale this initiative, bringing in other partners, which already includes Root Capital and Instapro and uh, others coming. Um, and then there are also local entities uh, that are going to be part of the uh, way of taking this forward. The second example I'm going to give you is the local hub one, uh, which I talked about, where uh, we're creating around uh, women-owned um, maize mills uh, in Mozambique uh, the opportunity not just to have uh, better-run maize mills, um, but also to overlay on that uh, the provision of a, a range of other products and services that can be uh, made available to local consumers. Um, one statistic that's very interesting is if you look at private sector registrations in Mozambique over the last few years, the most common business that's registered uh, with the government uh, under the uh, company's registry is women-owned maize mills. 140 companies now exist in Mozambique, and these are companies that have established spontaneously without support from development programs. Um, so that's great on the one hand that there's that entrepreneurial drive and fervor there and the realization that there's a market opportunity. On the other hand, uh, they're not terribly well run. Uh, the food that they're milling is not necessarily terribly safe. It's not necessarily the most nutritious and so on. So there's a sort of upscaling opportunity of working with these women-owned maize mills uh, to improve um, what they're doing as a business, make it a more sustainable business, uh, improve the quality of the food, fortify the food, and we're working with DSM uh, on that, um, improve the ability for those businesses to offer storage services and trading services, and then expanding them into these hubs, uh, as I mentioned. Um, and other partners apart from DSM, we're working with these women entrepreneurs and then also a number of NGOs that are going to be offering services around these hubs. Um, so final points, um, in terms of what should the U.S. government be doing more of, um, uh, I offer some reflection on perspectives that we've heard from private sector partners that um, maybe they would be more reluctant to say, so I'll say it. Um, first of all, the lack of willingness on the part of aid uh, to share their strategy as it's being developed, um, and the perception is that it, there's a fear of one company being favored over another. Um, we think that the government should be just reaching out more as it's developing a strategy in the same way as I'm doing now and just showing the underwear and saying, you know, here, we're struggling with this. Come in and help us. Um, secondly, uh, dealing with aid is complicated. Um, GDAs notwithstanding, um, that's about the only mechanism. Uh, Feed the Future and Jada and her team are working furiously now trying to unfold new uh, avenues of engagement with the private sector, but it's still uh, procurement regulations and other things get in the way of, uh, you know, smooth and easy uh, process of engaging with the U.S. government and that African Alliance for Improved Food Processing and the struggles that uh, we've had getting that off the ground and so on is a good example. Um, and then thirdly, uh, US some U.S. government staff at least uh, don't uh, seem to understand what the private sector really needs and how to engage with it effectively. So one idea is to uh, offer more exchanges um, between uh, the government and private companies, uh, assigning people either way uh, to help to really bridge that understanding. Um, and then also hiring in more people with the private sector experience into the government. Um, and uh, that's, you know, happening in part, but it's a, a relatively slow-moving process. And, of course, we know many of the congressional challenges right now to uh, efforts to upscale uh, the agency. So let me stop there. Thank you.
Hello, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jorge Casimiro from the Coca-Cola Company, and um, I bring a bit of a unique perspective in that I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not an economist, I've uh, never worked in agriculture, I've worked on the operations side of the Coca-Cola Company, and now on the public affairs side, both at corporate and in, in our operations in Latin America. Um, so I hope that as opposed to taking away from this panel, I'm actually adding a different perspective to the conversation that we're going to have this afternoon. Um, should I just take the three questions in order? Great. So addressing the first question, what has the Coca-Cola Company done um, over the last year? And there's one program in particular that I'd like to highlight and then touch on a second one. Uh, internally, most companies, we like to have project names for things. You know, we think we're, we're, we're spy agencies or something. This is called Project Nurture. Um, great name for what the project is, and it's a four-year collaboration in Kenya and Uganda. Uh, working with the Gates Foundation, implemented by TechnoServe, $11.5 million. The idea behind uh, Project Nurture, which was launched in January of last year, is, is very simple. Double the income of 50,000 small farmers, small farmers dedicated to passion fruit and mango specifically. Um, it has been a great program uh, to date of those 50,000. We've had about 23,000 farmers selected and trained. And the idea behind this is to build their capabilities, uh, facilitate access to credit, and to skill building. Uh, one of the things that we looked at when, we've, when we were designing this program with the Gates Foundation and with TechnoServe is what are the gaps that normally exist when you pull together a project like this? And what quickly became evident is that we're helping these small farmers to produce um, and increase their yields of mango and passion fruit. Well, then what? And as the world's largest beverage company, and few people know the world's largest juice and juice beverage company, um, there was a great opportunity for the Coca-Cola company to then buy some of that um, fruit. Uh, specifically, we're talking about fruit for the fresh market and, 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 and fruit for the juice market. So uh, very significant, last year, at the end of last year, I should say, in the fourth quarter of 2010, which is another point I'll get to in the third question, how, how companies like Coca-Cola measure time. Um, in the fourth quarter of 2010, we were able to launch the first product in Kenya that actually utilized locally sourced mango from this project, uh, which, was called, which is called uh, Minute Made Mango Nectar. So uh, really collaborative uh, partnership. We think it's something um, that will definitely be a basis uh, for future projects in this area. I want to touch really briefly on a second one, although it doesn't have to do with Africa specifically. It has to do with Haiti. And I want to mention it because I think one of the benefits of these kinds of partnerships is really learning how to act even quicker and, and building based on past success. So after the devastation of the earthquake in Haiti, um, we sat together, our, and I give my CEO all the credit for this besides the fact that he's my CEO, uh, he really came up with this idea with other thought leaders in Davos and, and said, we need to do something. What can we do quickly and effectively for the people of Haiti? Um, and we looked at it very, very quickly because we had very little time and realized that mango was one of their top three exports and that the government in the post-disaster um, uh, plan for the country had identified agriculture and rural development as two key focus areas. So what we were able to do is, based on the learnings from Kenya and Uganda, adopt a very similar project in Haiti around mango. 
Um, and again, I want to highlight it because we were able to go from the devastating earthquake on January 12th, if I'm not mistaken, to announcing this on the 30th of March at the United Nations, and then to being on the ground implementing in September. So between nine weeks from the earthquake, we were able to announce nine months from the earthquake we were implementing. This wouldn't have been possible had we not had the experiences in Kenya and Uganda um, um, from all the work that we had done before that. The other component um, in Haiti that I think is, 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 is special because it does uh, play a role in nutrition is building awareness. And one of the things that we were able to do as one of the world's largest marketing companies is to build, a, to build awareness about the situation in Haiti, both through our Times Square sign in New York City and by using one of our brands, Odwalla. Uh, we launched a brand last year, again, to coincide in March, Adwala um, Haiti Hope Mango Limeade to raise awareness for what was going on and to raise funds for what was going on. And we've continued that this year. We've now launched uh, Adwala Haiti Hope Mango Tango, a bit of a, um, a different brand name there. We always want to do something different with our marketing efforts. And what we've done there is 10 cents of every bottle uh, goes towards the project up to $500,000 a year. Um, so again, this kind of model that we can replicate as we look to scaling up, which I know is one of the themes of the conference. Um, in terms of the second question, what we're doing, um, Susan and I went back and forth on this because uh, we're doing quite a number of things. Unfortunately, none of it's public quite yet. Uh, but what I can tell you is that for the last 18 months, we've been looking through the history of the Coca-Cola company. Coca-Cola this year celebrates 125 years. Uh, very few institutions can claim that, something that we're very proud of. And in those 125 years, we've had pockets where we have developed um, products to address specific nutrient needs, specific nutrient gaps. For a variety of reasons, they haven't been as successful to move beyond a pilot um, stage. And what we've been doing over the last 18 months is studying what went wrong, what were the learnings so that we can do something um, that's meaningful and that's sustainable. And um, what I can say there is watch this space. One of the learnings um, that I'd like to share, though, is that it's not as simple, and I'm sure all of you can appreciate this, it's not as simple as just creating a product. Um, one of the things that we leverage as the Coca-Cola company is we know how to make beverages whether it's a Coca-Cola, a juice, a water. We know how to make beverages. We know how to distribute beverages. But we also know marketing. We know how to create awareness. And one of the things around nutrition is really creating that awareness because the last thing we want to do is develop something that is then freely given away um, to those most in need without their understanding why they need it and why it's important to continue um, leading an active, healthy lifestyle and eating a nutritious, balanced diet. So the education component there is going to be very important. And again, I just would say, watch this space. And in terms of the third question, um, in terms of uh, the recommendations to the United States government, um, I loved Simon's point about uh, an exchange type program. I think one of the things that we have found is any kind of relationship, any kind of partnership, whether it's a personal one or an institutional one, is difficult by definition. Inherently, these are going to be difficult, um, not insurmountable, but there are challenges that have to be overcome, and that is getting to know one another. Um, it would be wrong for 
a company like Coca-Cola or any private sector company to say, this is my operating model, and you, U.S. government, USAID, TechnoServe, GAIN, must adopt that operating model in order to do X, Y, and Z, because that's the way to go, in the same way that it would be unfair for my colleagues to say the same thing about Coca-Cola. So the idea here is finding ways to create uh, a, a if you will, a, a, a joint model that works to really expedite these things. Um, one of the things, as I said earlier, how Coca-Cola measures time, and I mentioned quarters because we report to Wall Street in quarters, but really, you know, we as a private sector, we're looking at our numbers every day. We're looking at our numbers every day to find out what's going on, what's not going on, how can we fix it. There's a constant feedback loop. Um, and it's this kind of thinking that we think we can bring to other partners and leverage their areas of expertise. As Simon said during his remarks, um, you know, Coca-Cola alone can't do this. We need to work with others. And I'm not just saying it because Simon here and Gaines here, um, but they are two of our partners. And we have many partners, but others are really experts in this is where you should focus your efforts, Coca-Cola. This is where there's the highest need. This is the kind of formulation you should be looking at. This is the kind of partnership. This is how we communicated about it. Importantly, this is how you measure it. The M&E component is so, so critical to this. And while I can talk M&E about Coca-Cola's business till I'm blue in the face, I couldn't do it about nutrition. Um, the last two points I would say in terms of recommendations is um, trying to find, and I'll put this in quotes, a simplified process. Um, realizing you're never going to have a simple process in partnership, but uh, finding ways to make things simpler so that you can make decisions and, and, and move quicker. To implementation. And the last point, I guess, would be how to surface new ideas, um, whether it's something as basic as brainstorming when, you, when you're talking to one private sector company, come in and tell us, you know, this is my business, this is what I do, I want to know how I can contribute to your objectives. Having that space, having that mechanism where those ideas can come forward, and then really thinking through maybe it doesn't meet the goals of this specific program or the objectives of this specific program, but within the U.S. government, there are a number of entities that maybe they say, you know, maybe it's not at USAID, but I know of this innovative uh, program going on in fill-in-the-blank agency so that we can do something that really benefits um, those who need it the most. So with that, I'll turn it over. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's, it's really nice to be here. Uh, I'll just start by saying that I've been really enjoying listening to the other panelists, uh, and not just on this panel, but the previous two. Uh, and in particular, I've really enjoyed how frank of a discussion we've been having so far. Because I think it's very important that we all recognize, to the extent that any of us didn't already know it, uh, that this is a tremendously complex set of issues that we're dealing with here. And we're talking about working across uh, entire value chains uh, and about addressing unique food systems in, in each country that each have their own set of challenges. So it's important to know that uh, we all face these challenges and we all recognize them. We are, don't delude ourselves into thinking that it's a, a simple fix. Uh, but I think it's also important that we all understand that just because it's a challenge doesn't mean that we should therefore approach it with simple solutions. We can't approach these things with one-off projects here or there in only one country on one particular crop on one piece of the value chain. 
it's uh, I hate to say it, but it would be effectively a waste of resources if we are that focused that we can't see how these interventions fit into the larger whole. So with that, uh, a little bit about gain. Uh, and in full disclosure that I'm, I'm very new there. So uh, if I misstate anything and you know something else about GAIN, I would invite you to chime in, please. So GAIN was uh, started up in 2002 as a special session under the UN General Assembly on children. And uh, as it was told to me, there were effectively two hypotheses that GAIN was trying to address in its creation. Uh, the first is that the global community, and particularly the global nutrition community, knows what works. They know what interventions need to take place, what particular micronutrients address what particular challenges. But what they don't know is how to take that knowledge and bring it to scale. The second hypothesis is that people buy their food. So what this tells us is that nutrition is a complex issue, as I said before, and not one that can be answered with a classic health-focused only interventions. It requires addressing challenges up and down the agricultural value chain, and necessarily that requires working with markets and working with the private sector. So GAIN is very well positioned to deal with all of these different challenges. GAIN is a neutral platform. We have uh, funding from multiple different donors, from private foundations, through partnerships with our private sector partners, and through our relationships with our in-country actors. GAIN is a cross-sectoral alliance. It is one that works with the private sector, both at the multinational level, where we are continually learning how to work with the Coca-Colas of the world, but also with local partners in the country, small-scale millers, up to national-level companies, we also are working with the national governments on policy level campaigns to try to integrate nutrition, health, and agricultural policies to make it possible to have these large-scale interventions. GAIN also works at the market or at the consumer level to drive market demand through education. And we have a long history of working with communities to try to understand what their needs are and to help educate them about what we as a global community can provide. And lastly, GAIN is working on the cutting edge of science and technology, not just through the knowledge and resources that GAIN has, but also the ones that we can bring to bear through our partners, such as DSM, who is one of the, the largest vitamin producer in the world. GAIN has two core activities. Uh, the first is a population-based model. We do this through our national fortification alliances. One such example is the South African Alliance for Malnutrition, or excuse me, against malnutrition. That alliance is addressing the issue of um, micronutrient deficiency in staple crops and particularly in the uh, cereal crops. 45 million people in South Africa are fed primarily off of the cereals. And there are approximately five large-scale millers in South Africa that mill the majority of that grain. So through identifying this and linking in different partners, GAIN was able to help fortify all that grain with the necessary micronutrients, especially iron and uh, folic acid. And through that intervention, was able to reduce anemia by 30% in South Africa. 
The second intervention that we have is the targeted population approach. Uh, this is the one that is now being championed by the Thousand Days movement, by the Sun Framework and others. It's focusing on the critical window of opportunity in the first thousand days of a child's life. And it is a, a critical point to focus our resources because if we do not, there is a danger of irreversible damage, both cognitive and physical, which we cannot overcome. I've seen it quoted many times that the estimates uh, about the total overall damage to other economies are massive. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 3% of GDP is lost as a result of the cognitive loss from the first 1,000 days of life. And it has an impact across all of the MDGs. Now, I would actually answer briefly uh, each of the three particular questions. The, uh, the first, what GAIN has done in support of Feed the Future in the last year? So I'd like to highlight the GAIN premix facility. This was started in 2009. Uh, premix is a commercially prepared blend of vitamins and minerals, which are then used to fortify staple foods. The government and industry partners face many challenges in procuring these premixes. Uh, most notably, the high cost or relatively high cost of procuring the mix uh, and the challenge of ensuring that it is a quality mix, which can then be counted on. So Gaines Premix facility has four core functions. Uh, the first is a certification process. We've hired an, an independent partner who is able to certify that each of the different suppliers, uh, their the premix is of a sufficient quality. The second is a procurement facility to help make it possible for small-scale uh, pro processors and, and small users in country to be able to procure these relatively complex and often large-scale uh, grants or excuse me, contracts. Uh, the next is a credit facility to help make the financing model possible. And the last is a grant mechanism which allows for uh, the provision of fortificants to needy populations and in emergency situations. To date, GAIN has certified 15 blenders and 17 micronutrient suppliers, including DSM. In June of 2010, the facility had sourced premix orders worth $6 million, reaching an estimated 60 million people in 11 countries. By January of this year, that number had hit $10 million in orders, uh, and we're still beginning to calculate the reach numbers, but they're dramatically higher. This facility is directly helping FT, uh, the Feed the Future to reach their target populations with a high-quality, nutritious food through an innovative model which connects premix customers to leading global and regional suppliers. I think that's really a, a nice model for how GAIN works and the real value add that GAIN can bring because we have all of the supply and all of the knowledge and technical expertise and resources collectively at our disposal. There are so many actors in this space, each of whom can bring so much to the table. But the connections are not happening in the country. We're not driving that and delivering for the smallholder farmers, and we're not being able to really move the needle in country yet. Excuse me. As to the question of what new initiatives are coming out soon, GAIN has a number of new partnerships. One of which, uh, and I'm very pleased to have Bruce next to me, uh, is a partnership with USAID, which GAIN announced in, uh, jointly announced in the UN General Assembly in last year, September. This partnership is intended to conduct rapid assessments in specific countries in order to identify across both the nutrition and the agricultural spaces what all of the opportunities are for investment. 
and I mean all, or at least as many as we can realistically achieve. The purpose is not just to say USAID should fund these three projects because they have a major impact. It should be these are all the projects that would move the needle in country. USAID may choose the ones that they so choose and partnering with private companies, multinational or local, as they see fit. But there should also be a framework for other donors and other private sector and universities and others to come in and strategically try to align resources, even if we're not funneling resources into a common pot. We have tentatively set the countries and at least Uganda and Bangladesh as to be beginning soon. So very excited about that. Another partnership uh, that USAID would like to announce uh, and has already been mentioned by Simon and others previously uh, is a new partnership with TechnoServe, which lines up very closely with, US, uh, with GAIN's move into the food systems approach, integrating both agriculture and nutrition. That MOU, as Simon mentioned, is meant to, <clears throat> meant to touch on a number of different areas, including expanding production and distribution of fortified food products, identifying new entry points and innovative sustainable mechanisms for delivering commercial nutritious food to the market, supporting the development of local markets and linkages for nutrient-dense foods to smallholder farmers, and identifying and supporting the implementation of innovative financing mechanisms to make this all possible. Another partnership that I am also very pleased to announce is a partnership that GAIN has signed with NEPAD, which is the new partnership for African development. The goal of that partnership is to formally link nutrition and market-driven approaches to solving nutrition into the CADAP framework and into country investment plans. Uh, we believe this is a very critical element of partnership, which has to date not truly been reached. Uh, the majority of the private sector involvement happens far after the strategy development process takes place when others are looking to bring additional resources to the table. And we believe that, uh, as Dan Rundy and others mentioned earlier, uh, that alliances, are, in order to be truly effective, they must be the intersection of strategic interests of all of the partners. And that requires bringing the partners to the table at the very beginning stage and with the country input. Now, as to uh, specific recommendations for what the USG can do uh, to deepen their involvement with the private sector, uh, it's obviously very important to recognize the current budget uh, environment. And given that it is more important now than ever to engage with the private sector, we have to bring in resources wherever they're available. But we have to do it that way. We have to do so in a strategic manner. We have to align all of these resources across common plans because we're trying to look for multipliers. It's not just avoiding duplication. It's about trying to find different actors who fit into different pieces of a value chain and where an intervention here can roll all the way up and down the chain and impact the bottom lines for companies who choose to invest, but also bring all of the small farmers and connect them into the market and employ more people in local processing capacities and improve the education and all of these things, they're multiplying investments. So the US government and other governments need to look for these big wins. And they can't be afraid that they're challenging. They are challenging, but they're critically important. Thank you. 
Thank you. And um, I, I'm really grateful for this chance to, to speak to you. This is um, uh, an opportunity for highlighting nutrition in the, in the context of agriculture as well as health. And I think in terms of the challenges that we've been hearing about uh, the Feed the Future and the opportunities that uh, we look back in time, there's been a really a long-standing uh, investment and support to nutrition and agriculture from USAID. It's gone up and down over the years. But I think in terms of the the, the process from investments in basic research, understanding what the issues are, where our investments could have the most payoff in the 70s and 80s, that, that type of research I think has contributed to our understanding a lot of what's going on now. The things we're talking about in the context of Feed the Future was actually investments in research done in that period, both from a policy point of view, from an operational point of view. And I want to really uh, recall those, uh, those era, including information systems, measurement, the functional significance of deficiencies, those kinds of efforts, not just by USAID, also by the US government, other governments, I think have established the foundation under which now that the Feed the Future has been um, accelerating our efforts. And so much of what we've done is focused much on process in the last few years. We sort of ignore, to some extent, inputs and outputs. But in terms of bureaucracy, as USAID, look at process. And I want to also recognize that in addition to Feed the Future, investments in, in nutrition, agriculture, also cuts through other, uh, across other resource streams, notably things like uh, PEPFAR is a major support for food nutrition in the context of HIV, TB, and malaria, but also Title II food aid, both emergency and non-emergency programs. Those are uh, major resources that go towards hunger, nutrition, and food security that have, for all sorts of reasons, uh, I think been going on for 50 years, but more recently in the last 15 years, have been a significant, uh, I think, movement in terms of understanding how to measure, how to implement, how to integrate resources. So what we're doing under Feed the Future and the way we're trying to are bringing together health, agriculture, um, nutrition is something that's really building on a lot of work that's been done by many of the institutions represented in this room. And so the Feed the Future, which is really, as, as many of you know, managed um, primarily through USAID under the Bureau, of, the new Bureau of Food Security. And I'm coming from the Global Health Bureau, which uh, under its child survival, with resources from PEPFAR, as well as some of the other investments made around specific nutrients like vitamin A, iodine, uh, over the years have been really important in terms of the work that we've done. So we have the technical base, we have the, the um, uh, institutional relationships that AID has built up with its various partnerships and the mechanisms that we have to support both the research, the translation of that research into uh, guidance or policy and through interventions or activities at the country and global level. And that work is also at a policy with uh, normative agencies like the World Health Organization as well as in the, um, in the context of U.S. Uh, capacity strengthening efforts. Uh, these kinds of combination of policy, program, and capacity together with uh, measurement results reporting have been sort of at the core of what we've done. So in the context of Feed the Future, that's been, I think, accelerated. It's been codified. And I think in terms of the nutrition activities at the country level, we've seen significant advances in the last 12 months in the way the countries have mapped institutionally what they're doing. When I say countries, I mean USAID in partnership with the host government and the key stakeholders in that country. They've mapped 
their capacities, who's doing what, and identified priority areas. And I think a number of speakers, including questions, have spoken to some of the concerns about being focused on single crops or cereals. I think we also share those concerns, and we very much look to the technical community, to the countries themselves, to help us with those priorities, to identify what the needs are. And if it means investment in something that's not necessarily directly related to uh, dietary quality, then that would be a determination that they would make at that level. We, from the nutrition point of view, are not doc uh, doctrinaire in saying you need to make investments in dietary quality across the value chain. Uh, in, in investments to improve the value of crops doesn't always have to have a direct nutritional benefit. But we're unified both in Feed the Future and the Global Health Initiative through a common objective of reducing undernutrition by 30%. Undernutrition can be measured by anthropometric, stunting, wasting. It can also be measured through dietary diversity, dietary quality, uh, micronutrient uh, deficiencies, uh, conditions like anemia. So that objective, which behind it has a lot of different activities, is critical in making sure that when you come up with an intervention that's focused on a staple food, that indeed does that translate to anything that has to do with stunting or anemia or vitamin A deficiency. These are the problems that have been identified against which there's evidence to support what we should be doing. So we will be held accountable along with the programs that address many of the issues that we've heard today and the linkages among the different sectors. Uh, we will be held accountable to achieve that result. And it's not going to be straightforward, but we have the models in place that have put costs associated with what it takes to treat or prevent a case of malnutrition. And by treating malnutrition, and I want to uh, highlight a little some of the issues around the links to the private sector, we're looking basically at treatment and prevention of undernutrition. And there are some elements there that will also relate to overnutrition, but the um, Feed the Future is a rural undernutrition-focused initiative. Complementing that is the Global Health Initiative, which I said shares the objective, but as Matt referred to, the Thousand Days movement that the Secretary of State, State launched last September is a way to have a biological focus to help unify the multiple different ways we can address that. At the international level and now translating down to the country level, the Scaling Up Nutrition Framework and Roadmap is again a consolidation, a representation of those issues that are reflected in the Feed the Future and the Global Health Initiative. Uh, and so in, in prevention, sorry, in treatment of, of undernutrition, uh, we have for many years, as, as many of you know, worked on the development of products, for example, micronutrient supplements, lipid nutrient supplements are the more recent generation of products, powders, sprinkles, these kinds of products that are available through um, formal delivery systems, through the public sector in many countries we work, also available increasingly over the counter. Uh, and so the private sector has and continues to be an integral part of that process because the U.S. government does not produce these products. They procure them, they tender them, as does Medicines Sans Frontieres and UNICEF and other agencies that are part of these global programs. That's in the treatment of malnutrition. The ready-to-use therapeutic and supplementary foods are a new class in the last five or so years of products that have become available, again, mostly through the public delivery systems, but there is increasing efforts and investments going on in a part of the public and private sector on these products being available uh, over the counter. The issues around delivery mechanisms, targeting, cost, uh, the modalities of how these institutions can work together, we've heard about issues around border importation issues, those things are all challenges that have been identified in countries we're working, and together with 
the USAID missions and its various alliances and partnerships, they're addressing those. There are multiple different angles, but I think the recognition is that dietary quality is a common objective and we can get there through various means, including incentive programs, cash transfers. These things are just beginning to be looked at from our point of view, but are well-established approaches in the countries in, in uh, Latin America, for example, among uh, agencies and NGOs and other donors. So these kinds of tools, approaches, are part of the toolkit or the availability of interventions that we're looking at systematically from country to country. And those priority countries have been mentioned to some extent. Uh, Matt referred to Ghana, Uganda. There's a list of these uh, 20 or so priority countries that Feed the Future has. They overlap with the Global Health Initiative priority countries as well. The Sun are also focusing the scaling up nutrition around what they're calling early riser countries. They're where the highest burden of disease in the context of nutrition exists and where there's also opportunities for um, changes or advancements. So in terms of, of acknowledging that there has been a, a long-standing investment in nutrition, I think a recognition of the tools that are available, probably the best kept secret, that there are uh, ways to address nutrition. But you also recommend, uh, recognize that it's also multiple entities, multiple sectors, and there's issues around equity or discrimination or um, uh, determinants of poverty that also affect nutrition in a particular country. So the sort of interventions that we're able to do, we're very much focusing on population-based approaches like the fortification of cereals or vegetable oil, but we're also looking very much at other ways, education, girls' education, to support those kinds of investments, uh, interventions that will complement the more direct uh, types of things that we're talking about here today. And I just want to finish on, on and highlighting in terms of our joint efforts at looking at dietary diversity, that we're open and, and needing to look at these kinds of relationships that we've heard about today. There have been a series of memorandums of understanding signed with some of the companies. We, uh, in the Global Health Bureau, uh, as Matt referred to, have, have an agreement with the GAIN organization. We have several projects or procurements that we work with in which we are actively working with the private sector in those different relationships. We're constrained with being public or taxpayer money in terms of what we can do from a procurement point of view. We're governed fairly carefully on that, as, as also has been referred to the current budget situation and looking out in the subsequent years where many of the, the support for Feed the Future has been fairly ambitious, as has been for the Global Health Initiative. The strategy was actually only publicly released yesterday. Um, but there are fairly large price tags associated with these new initiatives. So what we need to do is be really rational and looking at where the highest priorities, where the highest gains are, to get the traction needed to get continued support from the Congress, but more importantly, from other donors, from the private sector and the l larger civil society, uh, which have all bought into, I think, uh, most have accepted the, um, the challenge that we've been given around the reduction of undernutrition. And, and of the many challenges that we are facing, uh, I think um, the, the getting our message clear, getting a single narrative that I think can bring and keep us honest, bring the different sectors together to be able to recognizing the challenges that we face within our own different organizations, how to be able to do this collectively. We've spoken today very much about country ownership. I think that's still really uh, is to be shown or to pr be proven, partly because of the need to get the nutrition agenda on the global uh, stage. There's been a lot of fast-tracking of, 
of things like the scaling up nutrition, but where we are working with our missions at the country level to be able to ensure that there is that uh, ownership and resource rationalization at the country level, including, uh, in a sense, ownership, but also uh, cost sharing as well, meaning that the things, challenges around capacity building are huge to be able to make sure that we're doing this from a business point of view that's not always about external financing of every aspect of capacity strengthening in a particular operation. So I'll stop there and, and invite um, questions. If I may. Thank you. All right, thanks to this uh, excellent panel. Uh, thank you to Simon and Jorge and Matt for some really interesting examples of new initiatives that uh, you've, been, you've been working on and some, I think, excellent um, advice to kind of kick off a discussion for suggestions for the USG on how to accelerate uh, alliances. And, and, Bruce, that was a really outstanding kind of overview of some of the things that um, you're doing to advance this, this broader agenda and where this is all going on the nutrition side. So thanks. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time, but we really did want to frame this as a, as a discussion. So um, love to take uh, your questions for any of the, any of the panelists. Uh, go ahead. Is that more in the back? Okay. Hi, I'm just curious about, um, to, to your point, Jorge, about marketing and the importance of, of people understanding what they're getting and why and why it's important to continue that type of um, nutrition or sustainment. And also, to Matt, to your point, that you're doing a lot of um, fortification. Do you ever face problems with people not wanting stuff added to their food or curious about why, why are you adding this stuff? Is it going to be harmful to me and my family? And I'm wondering about some of the educational efforts you've taken on to um, deal with those issues. I guess I'll kick it off. Just based on the, um, on the first part of your question, uh, what, what we found when, when we've had projects like this in the past in different parts of the world, Brazil, South Africa, India, uh, Philippines is when you when you just simply provide the product whatever it might be you're not creating the understanding of why they need it um, so it, it really hasn't been a question of why are you giving me this or you know why are you adding this to my food or to my beverage but it's understanding that this can't just be philanthropic I can't just hand it off to you because at some point the life cycle of that project ends uh, and unless the, the end consumer, to use my language, understands why it was important for their diet and for their health, they're not going to continue along the path that we've kind of jump-started through that specific intervention. Um, I'll hand it over to Matt for a second part of your question. Yeah, I just I would echo what Jorge has said. It's, it's critically important that uh, the fortification process uh, or, or anything that's being introduced into the market is welcome there. Uh, and if consumers either don't know what the value of the product is, uh, or worse still, they have fears that maybe it's harmful, then they're much less likely to consume it, and it's much less likely to have any sort of a lasting impact. Um, in particular, I would point out an example uh, that I heard from DSM this morning. Uh, they have a partnership with WFP, uh, which GAIN has also been on the margins of, uh, to try to help uh, fortify all of the WFP food basket. And actually, they're aiming for 80 percent, uh, I think, within the next five years. But uh, one product that DSM has been active on is something called Nutri-Rice, 
which is a, a fortified rice product. And for a time, there were some real serious problems where the fortification process would discolor the rice or it would break some of the grains and whatnot, uh, and you ended up with consumers who just had no interest in eating it at all. So, but they've made some tremendous strides, and actually I've been told that now, uh, both color and in flavor, uh, there, are, there are no longer any noticeable issues, which doesn't mean that you can still just hand it off and, and not tell the consumers what they're getting, uh, but it makes it much more easy to, to share a, a positive message and one that they're willing to adopt. Just quickly, uh, nutrition literacy is something that's really critical in this country as much as it is in a developing country. So part of the effort, and it's sometimes lost in the eagerness to push our different agendas is around social behavior change and communication. And uh, in nutrition, whether it's about breastfeeding, exclusive breastfeeding, about appropriate complementary foods, we need the commodities, we need the products, we need the nutrients. But just as your own, if you look back to your own ancestors, the changes that you went through was really a combination of factors, including literacy around making the appropriate choices and having the information to make those choices. I think we probably have time for kind of one or two quick questions, we, which we can bundle and then the panel can collectively address. Um, it's more in the back. Um, yeah, I, over the last couple of days, I attended a forum that was put on by the um, Partnership for to End Hunger and Poverty in Africa, um, where a number of these questions were raised regarding agriculture and, um, and nutrition. And one of the big questions that came up was sort of the sustainability of these efforts. Um, considering the fact that, you know, um, there was a gentleman who mentioned that uh, he worked for a consortium that does wheat fortification in South Africa, and that they found after a while that there was not very much impact, and that really what the, the bottom line was that uh, the the mills were not fortifying because there was no, uh, what shall I say, business motive for them to do it. Um, they had not, not been checked. There was no accountability. And it, it suddenly you know, rang a bell because there were similar issues with U.S. food aids several years back. Um, and I was wondering what uh, is being done to try and create a market for these products. And, um, you know, more than just, uh, you know, building public awareness, is there actually some kind of business motive that can be creative that, that would be a market driver um, under, underneath these, this nutrition so that it's not just Coca-Cola coming in and investing or, you know, some other company coming in and investing, but there's a sustainable development of demand for nutrition. Great. I think we could take one more. There's one more. Yeah, we've, um, we've heard a lot about, I think, processed foods. Which, which populations are you reaching with the processed foods? Are they people more in urban areas? And which income groups are you reaching? Um, when you try to link agriculture to nutrition, I think the hope is really to start in the rural areas. Start with agriculture. Okay, one last one. Super, super quick. Quick question. Uh, 
Nabiha Kazi with Humanitas Global Development. So, um, and, and Matt, I love GAIN because we actually work with GAIN, but I, you know, I, I think one gap in the discussion here um, is the assumption that people buy their food. And those who are most vulnerable um, to malnutrition and hunger aren't buying their food. That's not their traditional practice. So this is a question for any of the panelists, maybe even Bruce, you could provide some insight is how do we ensure that those who are most vulnerable, most marginalized, have access to locally based um, nutritious food? What are those solutions looking like? How do we crack that egg? Why don't we just go uh, right down the line and each panelist can just address which of those questions they have something to, to add. Okay. Uh, on the uh, market drivers, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and that's really, you know, a lot of what our strategy is about is really trying to understand what those, um, you know, you might call them base of the pyramid markets uh, are demanding. And, uh, and, and I think there's two simple things. I mean, one is that, um, like the Nutri-Rice story, is that you make the rice look exactly like what people are, and taste as much as possible, you know, like what people are used to. Um, or you go very deliberately for something that's new, uh, but then you brand it and you market it, you know, appropriately. And the orange flesh sweet potato is a very good example of that, um, where there's been a huge take-up of something that people weren't traditionally consuming, uh, and it's you know had massive intake, uh, uh, massive impact on you know vitamin A uh, intake. So, so I think it's uh, I think it's both. But I think starting with the market and really trying to understand, you know, in the best traditions of Coca-Cola's sort of you know market uh, type analyses, what you know, is acceptable to people uh, is critically important. And then on the production and processing side, really important to understand the cost side um, and where are there opportunities for compensating productivity improvements and capacity improvements and so on so that you can compensate for the additional costs that are incurred, for example, the fortification. And DSM, uh, just to, you know, give one example, has great... Uh, stories about how, you know, just by tweaking uh, the ways that, for example, mills are working, uh, you can get, you know, 20, 30 percent productivity improvements uh, in the, in the uh, efficiency of use of the equipment that, you know, brings down the cost and compensates for these uh, kinds of things so it can be delivered to consumers uh, at no additional price. Um, on the income groups uh, question, um, I think, and, and, and I'll combine that with, you know, people buying uh, food or not uh, buying food. I, I think you're right. I think we don't know, actually. I mean, the poorest of the poor are typically landless in rural areas. Um, so they, they're not producing their food either. Um, so they probably are buying food, but they're probably buying very, you know, minimal amounts and going hungry some of the year and that sort of thing. But we don't know. Uh, there isn't really very good information. There's sort of high-level macro information, but community by community, uh, there isn't enough information on that, and it's a, it's a, it's a gap that needs to be addressed. I'm going to um, take the question on the different business motifs or business models, I think one of the things that we saw during this 18-month review of what's worked and what hasn't worked is, is that there were very different models that were instituted in, very, in, in different countries. And one of the first things we started doing, as any kind of private sector entity does, is we operate in 206 countries. So we have a bottom line, we have a P&L, we want to standardize. We want to operationalize so that it's one, you know, one model fits all. We realized very quickly that's not going to work in this space. Um, so what, what, what we've looked at is, if you will, I kind of put three little buckets here. One is the typical foundation philanthropic type model that might work in one country, not in another. The second one is um, in any one country providing the product to those at the base of the pyramid and then commercializing the same product, maybe with another brand name in capital or in another country 
where proceeds from the sale of that product could then fund what's given here at the base of the pyramid. Um, again, that's not going to work in every situation, but it's one model that we're looking at. And then the third is really, and this one that's going to take a little bit of time, we haven't quite cracked the nut on this, is uh, because a lot of the mechanisms exist through government, either feeding programs or something of the sort, is selling to government at cost. But one of the things that we have to demonstrate, one, and this is why the m &E is so important, is one, that there's a positive impact, two, that the, that the children like it, that the children are asking for it, and three, this education and awareness component that the families understand why their children need this. Because if we have all those three things lined up, then it's a much easier conversation to have with a national government or a regional government to say, this is why this product is beneficial. Your, 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 your students are asking for it. Their families are asking for it. Um, and in some cases, it might be a combination of all three of those models. And it might be a question of how do we sequence it to get it done right. But we really are spending our time to, 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 to try to figure this out, have a few pilot markets uh, by the end of this year to quickly expand within the next three years. So on the sustainability question, I think that that plays pretty nicely with the uh, concept of con complex partnerships that I was talking about earlier. You know, if you can get actors up and down the chain to invest in a common objective and a common set of interventions, then they can feed into one another and you can literally build a market where you have consumers and you have producers ready to work with each other. It needs a little bit of stimulating capital often and typically that needs to come from a donor or a philanthropic entity. But I believe that you can build those systems in place and the fact that we don't currently have sustainable systems doesn't mean that we can't in the future. Uh, and to the question of who we're reaching with uh, processed or fortified food, uh, and also to address the question about those who are not buying their food, uh, GAIN has a couple of different approaches that we're currently using, uh, one of which is uh, home fortification sachets, like sprinkles and whatnot, uh, that you can distribute uh, typically as a public uh, part of the health system. Uh, there's also uh, the possibility of moving into more biofortification and creating more quality inputs, which farmers can then reap the rewards on for themselves. Uh, and then also it's very important to remember that as we bring in our multinational partners and the complex distribution networks that they have, uh, many of which uh, employ local individuals to push out products into the communities, and there's a real opportunity to leverage those resources and those connections to distribute fortification products more widely. Thank you. Um, to Mara's question, I think the issue in South Africa speaks to the same situation in many countries. It's about having an evidence base on which you go ahead with a fortification approach. You regulate around that in, in negotiation with the public in the private sector, and then you verify through uh, appropriate sampling, laboratory establishments, to uh, make sure that there is compliance. The same in this country. It could be around E. coli contamination. It doesn't matter. It's the same principle. And then uh, in the countries like Kenya, where they've done fortification and labeling, there wasn't the, the public awareness campaign that made it uh, uh, an incentive on the part of consumers to say, well, this is something I need to consume folate in the flour that I buy, therefore it's a valuable addition. We have controversies like fluoride and water in this country. So these things need to be monitored over time because the needs change over time. Putting vitamin A into sugar in Guatemala 25 years ago is an excellent idea. Today, maybe you need to reassess that, 
policy because of uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and consumption of sugar, because the diet has changed in that period. So um, the, really it's the mo community mobilization, uh, communication issues around providing the incentives. And there are certainly other things you can do, including the sort of things that Matt referred to that speak to issues about low-income consumers, incentives around and subsidies of foods and food products. And we've seen this in terms of programs like in Mexico, where there have been conditional tra transfers of foods in this country in, in food stamp programs, but, but more importantly, uh, social protection programs to ensure that low-income households can access better quality or improve better quality of foods and improve the diets. And some of the country companies are doing innovative things as well around mobile technologies, providing incentives to be able to purchase, for example, a subsidized complementary food for their child, and the credit goes towards airtime for a mobile phone. I mean, these kinds of uh, incentives for participation to improve dietary quality is, is emerging now more and more. And there are also examples with companies with subsidies from developed countries to developing countries around certain products. You've seen that. And, and how do your, your comment about uh, absolutely correct, and I think Feed the Future recognizes that we need to improve the quality of the diet uh, among and for those people most effective, which is still predominantly rural. And I think what we need to always remind ourselves uh, is that it's not just one strategy. We need to ensure that we're looking at dietary consum consumption patterns among urban as well as rural, and that, um, for example, the work that you're doing on biofortification is part of that. But we also may need, as a stopgap, uh, to provide uh, specific supplements and the sort of things like micronutrient powders. So it's a combination of approaches, and getting that balance is very context-specific, and it's also very resource-specific as well. So I think the, the Global Health Initiative is meant to complement that in the context of emergencies with uh, Title II food aid is another part of those resource streams that we can tap into. And it ends up being a creative jumble and with all the imperfections that that represents. But I think that's how I see it as a complement. And I know groups like MSF are going after uh, corn soy blend as being an inadequate food aid in the US food basket, but it's only one part of the overall response to food needs in populations that are affected by emergencies or non-emergency situations. So uh, to expect corn soy blend to solve nutrition problems across the board is unrealistic, nor would we expect a product from from uh, any one of these companies uh, that we're working with. So it's a, it's a combination of approaches. Thanks. Great. Well, thanks for the excellent questions. And please join me in thanking the panel. Very quickly, I want to thank you all for coming. This event will be posted on our website. So if you want to listen to it again or um, refer your friends to it, please do that. And please keep, keep in touch with us. We'll like to see you back. Thank you very much, everyone.